Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Chesapeake Colonies. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, England. So, last time we talked about the Spanish and French empires in the Americas. We discussed Spain's extractive form of colonialism with widespread conquest and subjugation, fervent conversion, and varying settlement. We discussed France's extractive colonialism, predicated on extensive trade alliances, tepid conversion, and sparse settlement. Today we will jump into the founding of England's 13 colonies that would later become the basis of the United States of America. We will discuss England's unique form of colonialism and how it would uh, define the differences between various colonies. Now, even though we spent some time going into the background of Europe, Africa, and America prior to contact, we should go into the background of England before colonization, as it will affect uh, the future efforts. England was late to the colonizing game for a number of reasons. First, the 15th century was racked by a series of dynastic conflicts between the House of York and the House of Lancaster that historians have dubbed the War of the Roses. Initially, this started out as larger conflicts, but due to its length and cost, this ultimately meant that these houses competed with armies of just a few hundred loyal retainers. In the end, neither of these houses won the contest. Instead, a third party, the House of Tudor, came to power under Henry VII. With the power weakened and the country destitute, this dynasty laid the foundation for a constitutional monarchy, though this is still a few years off. England's government would be defined by a monarchy bound by specific laws that had certain restrictions placed upon their authority, which is unlike the divine right kingdoms of Louis XIV of France and King Philip II of Spain. As you can see, the Tudor dynasty reigned for an extended period of time from 1485 to 1603, first under the leadership of Henry VII, and then it fell to his fat pimp king, Henry VIII who ruled from 1509 to 1547. After Henry's death, the quote-unquote virgin queen, Elizabeth I, reigned from 1558 to 1603. Due to certain succession struggles, the Stuart dynasty came to power from 1603 to 1714, and in a series of foibles, the sons of the Stuarts would cause the English Civil War, which we need not talk about now. England is also late to the game of colonization because of the Protestant Reformation. See, it wasn't enough to fight over who would rule, but it was also important under which version of Christianity would come to dominate the kingdom. Due to his desire to divorce his wives, Henry VIII ultimately created the Church of England, or Anglicanism. This will form a crucial piece of English identity over the years, and will be the reason why Catholics were a mistreated religious minority in England. Due to this reformation, Henry's successor, Elizabeth I, will find herself at odds with numerous Catholic kingdoms. Because of her stance on religion, and her allowing of English, quote, sea dogs to raid Spanish shipping, and later the execution of her Catholic sister, this will spark a conflict known as the Anglo-Spanish War from 1585 to 1604. This is where the English score the great victory at sea against the Spanish Armada in 1588, which curtailed the Spanish dominance of the seas. 
Naturally, piracy is the name of the game in this era, as many men are looking to get rich quick. One last facet of England I want to foreshadow is the conflagration of the English Civil War, a conflict which would define the future of English governance and colonialism, as well as the fate of the American colonies itself. During this period, England had an extremely stratified society, with a monarchy, an aristocracy, a burgeoning middle sort or middle class, a lower sort, and finally, vagrants and criminals. These population differences will help explain parts of English migration and the motivation for such efforts moving forward. England in this era was a rural society, with 80% of the population living in country villages, most of whom are eking out a meager living and are vulnerable to any changes to the economy. With the end of the War of the Roses, England witnessed a demographic explosion as the population surged from 3 million to 5 million people between 1500 and 1650. The result was heavy population pressures. Simultaneously, the landed aristocracy began a process known as enclosure. Enclosure is a system by which land is enclosed by fences, preventing the peasantry from hunting or using the land as they had traditionally done. While this will boost profits for the aristocracy, it will lead to significant hardships for the lower sorts. In fact, so much hardships occur that within a hundred-year period, 50% of the peasantry lose their land from 1530 to 1630. Thus, a great fear of one's precarious position on the economic ladder will provide powerful motivations for migration. The takeaway from this is that the population boom, plus economic redefinitions and enclosure, will create a massive rural displacement. This displacement will lead to a new class of peoples known as the sturdy beggars. A sturdy beggar is a poor vagabond who is capable of work, but has none, and these sturdy beggars will soon flood into the cities. The middle sort in the aristocracy will fear social upheaval and discontent among these peoples. Additionally, they will resist efforts to raise taxes to support the struggling poor. These conditions will provide many ambitious men with the motivations to both get rich and alleviate England's growing social issues through colonization. But before trying their hand at New World colonialism, the English decided to try it closer to home, between 1530 to 1603. The Tudors sought to extend their dominion over Ireland, and engaged in a prolonged conquest that will be the training ground for their conduct in the Americas. During the conquest of Ireland, the English perfected a number of techniques to control the local population that will be put to use later. First, horrific atrocities against civilians. One English general said, quote, Nothing but fear and force can teach duty and obedience to such a rebellious people. End quote. And there is another tale of an English general lining the path to his encampment with the heads of Irish rebels, clearly showing that they were not there to win the hearts and minds of the people. Next, enslavement, as Irish rebels are sent throughout the country and later the empire to do menial labor. Next, the suppression of local culture and religion. After that, the creation of ideas about ethnic and racial supremacy. 
large-scale expulsions of the local populace could be replaced by Englishmen, and the creation of plantations and estates by Protestants for monetary gain and local control. These plantations were founded in Northern Ireland by English and Scotch-Irish settlers who promulgated Anglican Protestantism there, hence why Northern Ireland to this day is considered religiously different from the southern counties. You are all too young to remember, but throughout the 20th century, the IRA, or the Irish Republican Army, fought a series of terrorist battles against Britain for control of Northern Ireland. And all of this goes back to the early conquest 400 years ago. Again, the long arm of history. Now, many of the officers and men in the Irish conquest were going to be veterans who took these lessons to North America, and it helps explain the rather brutal conduct of the English towards native peoples. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Motivations and Promoters. Colonization is extremely risky. Thus, for a kingdom that is relatively impoverished after the Anglo-Spanish War and the War of the Roses, you need to subcontract out the business of colonization. In order to raise enough capital to embark on such ventures, ambitious men combine their resources into monopolies. Monopolies control an entire industry or enterprise, and it will be these corporate entities that work towards colonization. Many of these ambitious men were known as West County men, meaning that they were from the western counties of England. They were usually lesser aristocrats and the second or third sons of great aristocrats without much property. They were doing this to seek out political influence and riches, but they were also very anxious about the social ills that seemed to be racking England. One of the most prominent of these West County men was Sir Walter Raleigh. He was a famous courtier and ardent expansionist who attempted several times to found colonies in the New World. He would also run afoul of other prominent men and one day have his head chopped off for all of his trouble. Now, another motivation for colonization is the theory of mercantilism. This theory advocates a favorable balance of trade, whereby colonies buy goods from the mother country which allows exports to outweigh imports, thus generating more capital for investment. We saw how Spain suffered from a trade system that destroyed its economy with inflation, so the English are seeking to avoid such imbalanced trade. England goes beyond France's lack of zeal for Christianization, as these promoters hold no early desire to convert natives. So, to sum up, what ultimately made them want to colonize? Conflict at home, land becoming more scarce, and mercantilism. Selling as much as you can, buying as little as you can. So, how will American colonies help the English? One, a place to put excess people, especially poor and troublemakers. Two, markets for English goods, with the assumption that colonists would buy goods from the mother country. Third, sources of raw materials, like lumber and precious metals. So the English wouldn't have to buy these things from the Spanish or French, as we saw how Spain's importation strengthened her competitors. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Roanoke, Inglorious Failure. England's initial entry into colonialism in the New World was less successful than in Ireland. With imprecise maps, 
one name was given to a huge chunk of land between Florida and modern-day New England, and this was called Virginia. Obviously, the colony was named after Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen. The courtier we saw earlier, Sir Walter Raleigh, named the colony despite the fact that he had never traveled to the Americas. Regardless, he organized expeditions there. In 1585, the first significant English attempt to settle the Americas occurred at Roanoke. Roanoke is an island off the coast of modern-day North Carolina. However, it was poorly situated, being far from shipping lanes, because of the fear that the Spanish might find it and burn it to the ground. After about a year, the hungry and dispirited colonists left. The second English attempt was made in 1587. This time, 100 men, women, and children landed on the island. And a ship came back in 1590, and all of the colonists were gone. To this day, we don't exactly know what happened. The 1590 crew found, among other remains, Croatan, the name of a nearby island, carved into a tree. But the 1590 crew didn't want to sail through the shallow waters to the island, and so they left the colonists to their fate. So what happened to these colonists? Most believe they probably went to Croatan to try to flag down a passing ship, and when they were unable to do so, they probably went north to the Chesapeake Bay, where they originally intended to settle, and perhaps they took refuge with some natives. Maybe they were killed by the Powhatan Indians, but there were some reports later on that said that there were a many of whites who lived with Chesapeake natives around 1607. Well, to this day, we do not know. But if you listen to the History Channel, then it's either Ancient Aliens, or apparently the show Supernatural has something about demonic possession and who knows what. Anyway, whatever the story, Roanoke is known to history as the Lost Colony. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Settlement. Jamestown was founded in 1607, as the first enduring English settlement in the New World. This town and colony was controlled and funded by a joint stock company called the Virginia Company. A joint stock company is a monopoly that issues shares to investors and promise for a return on that investment. The Virginia Company is the name given to this joint stock company that invested in this specific colony. Jamestown was named after the recently crowned Stuart King, James I, and it was established 60 miles up the James River so that the colonists would be out of the sight of Spanish raiders. However, the location also put them further away from shipping lanes and closer to unhealthy locations. Based on this, we can surmise that this location was probably not meant to be a permanent settlement because the first 104 settlers were all men and most of them were from the minor aristocracy, unaccustomed to working with their hands. So due to the location and the people, this colony struggled mightily for the first year. The men wanted to hunt for precious metals and not work or farm, and they certainly did not want to build a permanent settlement, all of which required a great deal of labor. Since these men did not want to farm, they raided local native crops and demanded food from those that they felt were inferior to them. Naturally, this started fights between them and the local Powhatan Indians. And as I said before, the landscape was very unhealthy due to the numerous swamps, 
which bred mosquitoes and contaminated the drinking water. One colonist said, quote, Our drink was cold water taken out of the river, which at flood tide was very salty, and at low tide was full of slime and filth, which was the destruction of many of our men. End quote. Thus, from malaria, dysentery, and salt poisoning, after nine months, only 38 men were left alive. Please advance to the next slide entitled Jamestown's Trials. So, how did Jamestown ultimately survive? Well, John Smith, a military man, should get some of the credit. He was one of the seven counselors appointed by the Virginia Company to govern the settlement, and by 1608, he was placed in charge. He forced all the colonists to farm for six hours a day and implemented the policy of, quote, he that will not work shall not eat, end quote. Now, here's where we get a little bit iffy because of popular culture. How many of you have seen the Pocahontas movie? Well, unfortunately, it is incredibly inaccurate, as is the even worse New World movie with Colin Farrell. For one, John Smith was not in love with Pocahontas, because Pocahontas was 11 years old and John Smith was well into his 30s, if not 40s. Pocahontas was the daughter of the Powhatan chief, and according to Smith's account, which was written later, he was on an exploratory trip, he got ambushed by natives, and was captured. He was then taken before Powhatan, and was about to be executed when Pocahontas saved him by throwing her body over him. Now, was Powhatan really going to kill Smith, or was this a ritual? Most likely, this is a native display of the chief's power, a ritualistic ceremony of sparing Smith's life by having the daughter of the chief throw herself over him. In addition, there's also a substantial amount of evidence that this episode may have never even happened altogether. Oh, and one more finer point, Pocahontas never married or was intimate with John Smith, because that's just gross. Anyway, regardless, Smith was not a popular guy among the colonists, and in 1609, he suffered a gunpowder burn when a store of gunpowder exploded, and there's some belief that maybe his people did that to him on purpose. Anyway, John Smith had to return to England, and not surprisingly, after he left, Jamestown entered the Starving Time during the winter of 1609 to 1610. The settlers were desperate. They stole food from local Indians, who then sought revenge. Severe food shortages led the settlers to eat dogs, cats, horses, mice, rats, shoe leather, and corpses. In fact, one man killed and ate his pregnant wife, and he was burned at the stake for it. By May 1610, only 60 starving colonists were left in Jamestown. By June of that year, Jamestown was evacuated, and the survivors sailed down the James River. And at the river's mouth, they ran into three ships from England, carrying 300 people, who convinced them to turn around. In other words, this settlement came that close to ending before it ever really began. And this is a great example that there is no destiny in history. It was not foreordained that the English would come and settle the Americas, it took hard work, sacrifice, and a lot of death. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Jamestown Survives. Jamestown ultimately survived because so many people went there. 
with a plentiful supply of landless peasants, sturdy beggars, vagabonds, and criminals, England could simply throw bodies at the problem of colonization. And this is actually a continuity of human history. Societies can grow and build great things if you're just willing to throw death and misery at the problem. Hence, the pyramids and the Great Wall of China. To aid this supply of people, in the 1610s, the Virginia Company adopted what was known as the headright system. This dictated that any man who paid his own passage to Virginia would receive 50 acres of land. In addition, a man would receive 50 acres for every servant he brought over as well. These servants were called indentured servants. They received no pay, but they did get a little bit of food, tools, clothing, and shelter, but just enough to barely keep them alive. A term of indenture lasted four to seven years, and while this doesn't seem like much, it was very risky, because early on, most newcomers to America died within five years. Most of these indentured servants were poor whites who had little to lose by leaving England. Early on, servants in Virginia and Maryland got 50 acres of land when they finished their terms of indenture. So if you managed to survive, this was a great opportunity because the poor in England had no chance of getting their own land. Between 1607 to 1622, 10,000 colonists were transported and only 20% of them survived. This survival rate led to a very stratified society of elites and indentured servants, in many ways resembling Old England. To compound this, there was a massive gender gap of about 3 to 1. And another important date is 1619, when 20 slaves arrived in Jamestown. Now, in the beginning, race was not as much of a factor as it was later, since there were some black indentured servants. But critical events moving forward will cause a switch from indentured white labor to enslaved black labor. More on this later. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Jamestown Flourishes. Indentured servitude would mean nothing without some commodity that could reap enough profit to justify continued colonization. That commodity was tobacco, and is another major reason why Jamestown ultimately survived. Tobacco was first introduced in 1616 by John Rolfe. Rolfe smuggled these seeds in from Spanish, Portuguese, and Dutch sources, and he became the first Englishman to experiment with tobacco seeds in North America. People in England, and Europe for that matter, loved smoking, and were willing to pay good money for the superior Virginia plant. This demand fueled the expansion of supply. The exportation of tobacco dramatically expanded from 200,000 pounds in 1624 to 3 million pounds in 1638 to 10 million pounds in 1660. These exports will also fuel the importation of more indentured servants into Virginia. You can see from the numbers how cash crops fuels immigration. There were 350 people in Jamestown in 1616, and that went up to 13,000 people by 1650. Going forward, however, the English population continually increased primarily from immigration and the native population decreased as a result of disease. Population growth was directly tied to immigration 
due to a 25% mortality rate. In addition, these profits will become powerful motivations for expansion. Why is expansion necessary? Well, there is a simple problem with the crop. Tobacco exhausts soil fertility, so colonists need to constantly look for new land to plant tobacco on. In addition, as more and more indentured servants survive, they too will want the land that they are promised, and this meant encroaching on native land, which produced many conflicts. Let's go ahead and cut off the lecture here, and we will pick up in part two with the Anglo-Pohatan Wars. So I hope you're all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.